Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature the second part of the interview with Stephen Carter Hicks. Stephen is a classically trained singer who found his calling in the world of cabaret. Starting his career in show business through his talents as a hairdresser, he worked on Broadway productions such as Tommy, but soon found himself on the stage in performances like Cats. He found his passion in cabaret and has gone on to record albums and produce and star in several shows. Eric Kaur continues his interview with Stephen about his life and career in show business. Sit back and relax and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Step Into My Parlor, The Stephen Carter Hicks Story, Part 2. How did you wind up getting involved with Tommy then? I mean, I think that'd just be such a... I'm hoping that was a fun experience, because it seems like... Oh my god, it it was really fun... Uh, <laughs> because the guy who played Tommy was Michael Servers, who is also a musician uh, who moved into back to New Orleans and and plays, and he's an amazing guitarist and amazing, just an amazing guy. We had a lot of guys like that in that in that show. Uh, Tommy was uh, uh, I mean, Michael Servers, Donnie Kerr, Alice Ripley. These these great artists on stage also sit down with a guitar and have this cool progressive kind of new rock sound and. Uh, they're they're great artists on top of that but i that's that was my first big broadway hair show Mm. because i worked hair on that show okay so uh because i knew that that was not a show that i could be in i i had was careful about how i picked and choose what i did backstage because i didn't always want to be seen backstage you know because people pigeonhole you no matter what you do they pigeonhole you you've had layers to your career and can Mm -hmm. you mention the hair can you tie into that a little bit because i think it's important for people to no i can't okay (laughs) yes well (laughs) you know i i when i was in i had gone to cincinnati conservatory of music and then i was going to work on some other graduate kind of things at boston university and uh, finish up some stuff and i was still floundering because the my voice teacher's teacher was at bu i should have just gone there to begin with but i really wanted to go to cincinnati for the name and it was a big disappointment because of that. But uh, we were doing a production of the Merge of Figaro, and I was playing. I was double cast because there was, you know, not so many students. So you have to. One night I was Figaro, one night I was Bartolo, and there Mozart wrote a lot of roles for bass, baritones, and basses. Um, so I I was doing both roles, and uh, Bartolo was the charactery older character, and Figaro was the young, you know, the young guy and cute and. Studley. <laughs> they had to actually, I had to actually wear a fat suit to be Bartolo. So those were my thin days. But uh, so we were, the guys were working my makeup for Bartolo one night and uh, they were uh, 
singers, the both of them. They were both mm-hmm. singers from New York. They brought up makeup artists and stuff from New York to do do all of her makeup and what have you. And and they said, well, so what are you going to do when you leave here? I said, well, I, I, they said, you're coming to New York, right? And I went, yeah. And they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, what do you mean? They said, what are you going to do for a living to make money? Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to sing. I'm just going to go there and sing. And they said, no, you're not. What are you going to do? You're not going to make money at what you're doing. And they said, it's not because you can't sing or you're not good. Right. He said, but that's what they told me. You are so young right now. And the roles that you're going to play are, they have character opera singers, that, uh, character men. Okay. And the so older. Mature people playing right, mature roles. Right. And, I was 23 and I was playing, you know, 60 year old and 50 year old character men. And that doesn't, that's not going to sell. That's just, they have those people and those characters. And I, I didn't get it at that point. I thought, well, what am I going to do? I went to my voice teachers and went, oh, what? What's going to happen? They said, well, that's why we're trying to get you to do all this contemporary new stuff and this wild stuff, because that'll be your bread and butter. You do you do all the, you know, the cantatas and the the very requiems and, uh, you know, Handel Messiah. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'd rather, you know, put a mayonnaise jar up my ass. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, but, if, you, if you do, there's probably a really good market for that somewhere. Well, there is, and I, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I've seen that. I think I, there's a fair here where we... we, we yeah, well, it was here, last so weekend, I, yeah, <laughs> I didn't go for that reason. I thought, I, my job, I'll, I'll have a new career. No, they, uh, they, so I was, I was really torn, and they said, well, you should learn this, theatrical wigs and makeup, because at least you'll be in the theater, and you'll be working, you won't have to wait tables, you won't have, you know, because yeah. they were like... You know, you don't want to do that. You don't want to wait tables in New York. It's grueling. It's hard. And I went, oh, geez. So I said, okay. So I I went to um, beauty school, and I got uh, licensed as a cosmetologist, knowing that I was going to go do theatrical hair and makeup. And I went to the wig people uh, in Washington, D.C., and said, I want to do wigs after we had done a production of something. And and they said, no, we're not going to hire you because, one, you need to be licensed, and, two, you're just going to get a job and leave us. And we're not going to train you and have you leave us. So I thought, fuck you. <laughs> I got to have a job. So I, I went to beauty school and I, I started doing the smaller opera companies, and which was not a mistake because, not necessarily a mistake, but not the best choice because that's where I should be singing, the smaller opera companies. Right. So then they would hire me to sing and do the wigs. So, well, that was really ridiculous, but I did it. And, uh, you know, 300 bucks is 300 bucks. I, you know, I needed the money, so I did it. And, uh, and I started doing that. And so I was doing political satire in Washington, D.C. And, uh, the, my partner, uh, said, you know, I, I want to move to New York. And I had been in New York and I really didn't want to go there. I really didn't. I liked D.C. I liked that area. I liked the opera there. I liked the theater mm-hmm. there. It was good. There was, it was a happening place and there was a lot of, room for me to grow there as a performer but you know led by your dick and i just went okay i'll go to new york (laughs) with you again i'll live there so i i i went but this time i was it was very different because i was sober and had this had this skill that i could do and i got uh i and everybody in new york everybody in washington and who had been new yorkers who'd come to washington said you're going to do nothing but work you're just going to work oh my god you're so funny oh my god you're going to work 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 right And I'm like, okay, let's work. Well, I didn't work right away. I was working at TGI Fridays right across the Madison Square Garden. That was work. But I also got this job in Macy's doing all, uh, I was Old King Cole in their uh, their kids show. They had a whole, oh, that's the great. seventh floor, they had a whole kids 
theater up there in New York. You know, oh, the, the New York, the Herald Square. Oh, Herald Square, it's, yeah. It's like a city. Oh, my God. And so I was on the float. I, for eight years, I did. I was old King Cole on the Mother Goose float in, in, in the parade, <laughs> Thanksgiving Day parade. And I loved that. And people That's just thought awesome. I was an idiot. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And uh, I, so I was, I, then I became the voice for Macy's. And I was their in-store announcer, and I was the voice for all the puppet shows, and I would do a lot of their commercial things, and I was voicing stuff. And we did shows in the window. You know, oh one of the Macy's God. big windows, we yeah. would do shows in the window. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, this is me happening. I'm doing all my performing stuff. And, and on the side, you know, but I wasn't making any money. So uh, a friend of mine, had done, I got to New York, I got a workshop right away, a Broadway workshop, uh, a musical, a Columbus musical. And... uh one of the girls in the show in the in the in the show was uh, Dainty June in the Tyne Daily revival of Gypsy, and so she did hand stitching. So she was doing this over at uh, City Opera, City Ballet, and they needed a hairdresser. And she overheard somebody saying, "Oh, we need another hairdresser." And she said, "Oh, I know, I know." So they called me. She set it up for this, and I they called me, and I went in, and I got the job. So I thought, okay, I can work the ballet because I would never do ballet, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is good. So people won't see me here in this position. So I thought, well, just maybe I can get in here and stay here at City Ballet and ABT. And this is all here. They need hair people. So I'm working. But the work, God, good God, wow, that's a lot of work. And so we're doing this this thing in this, uh, this opera, this ballet. And somebody walked in, a, a girl walked in and said, hey, I need a supervisor for this production of Salome with Al Pacino. And I just turned around and went, I'll take it. I'll do it. I'm free. I can do it. I can do it. And sure enough, she got it. So here I am working my first Broadway gig, and it's Al Pacino. And I'm having to cut Al Pacino's hair and do his hair. And he had a makeup artist, so I didn't have to deal with that. How was he on Broadway? Okay. I just, I'm sorry, I just, I... I, I have to tell you. Should I, I have not gone there? No, right? no, 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 no. It's quite fine. I'm going to write a book. And I told every one of these people, you misbehave. I'm writing a book. If you misbehave, I'm writing it down. And believe you me, they misbehave. He did not necessarily misbehave. I he, just can't imagine him on Broadway, though. Well, he, he doesn't well, have the voice for it. He doesn't have, like, he's a well, screen actor. Circle in the Square. Well, he's a theatrical actor, though. But is he, he really? Is? His, okay. his, yeah. His training is theatrical. And so here we are at Circle Square with... Uh, which is a theater in the round, but they took it out of the round for this production of Salome. So he's playing, you know, Herod, and you know the Salome is uh, the, John. You know the story. You know no, it's I a biblical know. story of John the Baptist when he gets beheaded because uh, Salome uh, is. They're afraid he and Herodias, his wife, are afraid that he's going to. You know, see, I, again, I was raised Catholic. Everything comes from the Pope. I mean, well, this is the this letters is, to the Corinthians. I mean, really, yeah. it was just. That's well, so all this, we was, this was John the Baptist. This is how he was killed. And so it's based on the true story. And Salome does the dance of the seven veils. He was a pervert. He wanted her. And he was, you know, it's a long story. So it's Al Pacino, uh, Cheryl Lee from Twin Peaks, who was just brilliant, but their first show and just afraid. Isai Morales, who was um, uh, La Bamba, played, uh, what's his name's best friend or brother? I don't remember what role he played in La Bamba. Uh, a lot of other great old character actors, a British actress named Suzanne Bardish, who were these a brilliant, brilliant cast of people, and it was unbelievable. And the guy playing Yokanan, who's John the Baptist, was Arnold Vosloo. Arnold Vosloo is the mummy in the whole series of the mummies. Oh, okay. But he wasn't the mummy then. He was this tall, skinny Australian guy who 
this is his first Broadway show, and it's with Al Pacino, and and Al is a method actor, and I say method, he is a freak. And you, when he once he was in costume, you had to address him as Herod. Really, you had to, and you wow. had to, you know, do everything that you would do to somebody like that. Fortunately, I didn't have to do so much of that, but I give you a lot of room if you're good. I open the door to yeah. you know your behavior, and I'm like, okay, you have a lot of license <laughs> to be a wacko, okay, because you are brilliant out there. Whatever it takes to make you do that, fine. But <laughs> but he was he was he was absolutely lovely. He was a very nice man to me, and just that whole wackiness. But he would have to see Arnold used to have to go. We had to get him ready first because he would have to go up to see Al for five minutes right before he went on. Because most of his dialogue with him, uh, Yokanan was in this in the cistern. He was in the, the prison. Mm-hmm. So Al had to be able to visualize Arnold, or Yokanan. I kind of, he'd kill me for saying that. Um, he had to visualize him. So he had to see him every night so he could visualize him when he talked to him before we, he comes out of the cistern. So you hear him for like two or three scenes have these conversations down in this hole. So but Arnold Voss was trying to get methody so he comes in and he's not all bulked up yet as the mummy and he comes in and and he we put this wig on him that's really long long stringy wig and he really wanted to look like he'd been down there for a long time and no bathroom and pissed all over himself and (laughs) so he walks in and he's and we put him in this white makeup his body makeup was all pale and all this stuff and he was really tall and skinny he's got a robe on and he comes in and goes hey steve i just want to see you didn't think what do you think about this i i decided i'd shave all the hair on my body and he just and he's completely naked. And literally, his dick almost hit the floor. I couldn't believe that. And, and I'm sitting, you know, I'm like this. I'm sitting here, and I look over to the left, and he just does that. I'm like, I, I said, well, why did you shave your pubic hair? You're not naked on stage. I mean, we don't, we don't see that. And he said, I just thought it would be a good thing to do. You know, I'd get into the pot. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he just sat there talking to me like this. I'm like, Okay, be cool, be cool. You know, I was really young, and I wasn't sure, you know, what do you do? What Are you coming on to me? What, do you want me to <laughs> pick that up for you, or what, what? And then he left, and that was that. I was like, oh, my God. Does it need makeup? Does it I mean, need makeup? No, yeah, well, he needed, yes, he did. There was a lot of there. I was like, wow, you could have a whole new profession. He was absolutely charming, though. He was absolutely nice. And I say that with a lot of love, that story, because he's he, he was so good. But... But that's so that's how hair started. And then the next job came right from there because the designer, uh, the woman I was working for was the assistant to this designer who, who liked my work and liked me and uh, just started using me. And so his next big gig was Tommy. Oh, okay. And that's so, so cool. I got, I went from there to Tommy and it, and I never stopped working. And the nice thing that what this did and what this afforded me was I could do my own work. I could do my club act at night. So after a Broadway show, we would all run over to the cabaret space, and I'd do my show. And, you know, and everybody would come and see the show from there. So mm. that's how that kind of got kicked off and got started. And uh, I, uh, at that point, I mean, I wanted to do Broadway as a performer, which I did. But, you know, I really liked doing my own thing. I really enjoyed that more than... You know, a Broadway show is great, but you don't realize you have to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Ten, eight shows a day, or eight shows a week. And that means you can't decide to go this way tonight because you feel like this. You have to go here because it's frozen. They right, call it, you right. know, Miss Bird's Eye. Put a, you know, put a, what is it? The, this show's frozen. Call me Miss Bird's Eye. So you, your arm has to always go here, and you always have to look here. And you can't 
You can't muck around too much because it throws other people off, and they get they get a little testy. Yeah, <laughs> rightfully so. If you, I mean, you know, if you're a swing or you're an understudy, and you go on, they're 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 hateful. They are just mean to the swings and understudy. Nobody ever wants to do that job, not because it's a, a hard job to do, but because the people on stage are the people who are mean. And I, I not all of them, but a good majority of them are just evil. When swings go on, and, and especially if there's one that they don't like. One night, Nathan Lane, what we were doing uh, for him, and uh, there's a scene with three guys, they're called the Proteans, and they, they play all these funny characters all over the place. They're involved with everything, and they're, they're, so they're like, uh, you know, the, the crowd scenes, it's them. So they're, they're now playing, they're the, the soldiers for Miles Gloriosus who's coming in. They're coming in to announce his arrival. So Nathan Lane's on stage by himself. The Proteans come in, and they say, we we are coming to present you with this contract from our from the general, and uh, so one of the Proteans was sick. So the understudy went on. Now, when you work on on a Broadway show or any kind of uh, union type show, you don't always get to rehearse with the props or things like that right. because it costs money to bring the prop people in to use the props. So you have fake props, or you just mime it. You know, because otherwise they have to bring somebody in. If you bring them in, then everybody has to come in. It's a four-hour work call, and it's a lot right. of money. So when you have understudy rehearsal, you just mime a lot of things. So, but they always say, be sure you practice going and picking this up, your prop, and getting it. Well, this particular actor, who I won't say his name, Kevin Kraft, was <laughs> on. And, and he's really, he's good. It just, you know, one of those things that happens. It, we all have those moments. All of those moments, and he... They go out on stage, and he has the one with the contract, and he understudied all three of these proteans too. So he had to know each, uh, sorry, each person's track. So he goes out, and he goes. They say, you know, we are so and so, and we present you with this contract, and it wasn't in his hand. He had nothing, and Nathan just looked at him and he went, "Are you sure? That's the contract. <laughs> That's the contract you want to give me because this looks like you don't have a contract." <laughs> now Nathan, now Nathan's brilliant. Brilliant. So he got 10 minutes. I swear to you, it was 10 minutes of free time on stage with this contract. And the kid did, Kevin went, I'll be right back. And he turned, <laughs> he went and got the contract. And he said, I present you with this contract. And well, then Nathan, Nathan just took it and ran with it because he's brilliant. Comic. Oh my God. It was, it was so funny that it got written up in the New York Times the next day and the post. They just happened to be in the audience. Nathan Lane destroyed the place because that yeah, role awesome. that show you can do that and it's fun nathan walked off stage now here's where it's ugly nathan walks off stage and says i will never work with that pro with right. kevin craft again he is never allowed to be on stage with me ever again he just went crazy nuts mad and i was like oh my god you just had some by the time this was over everybody from backstage was on in the wings in the floor laughing and Nathan walks off stage and turns into this absolute shrew. And I thought, oh, my God, Nathan, how brilliant. You've got, you have won over a whole 1,500 people who are now bigger fans of yours than ever. Wow. Because they gave you, you got this free moment on stage to have this. One night, he, Ernie Sabella was in the show, and he was, uh, they both did Lion King. He was Timon and Pumbaa and Timon. And they sang Akuna Matata. So, one night, Nathan, and Nathan would do things like this. They were running around, they're running around, and he was playing Lycus. And Lycus was this crazy guy, and they're, they're all running, and it's that scene where everybody's crisscrossing and all this mayhem on stage. 
and Lycus comes running up to, to Sudalus, who's Nathan, and he comes running up, and Nathan's just standing there, and he's like, and he's in character, and he's like, what, what, what? And he, Nathan was looking right at Ernie, and he just looked right down to the audience. He goes, you know you want to hear it. You know you want to hear it. And he looked just right over, looked at Ernie, said, do it. And Ernie just, without missing a beat, turned and went, Hakuna Matata! And off they went. And the show <laughs> went on. And the audience just went bananas. And that's just how it was. So if it was Nathan's idea, then it was great. But right. if it wasn't his idea, it was hell. And so you never knew with, with Nathan what you were going to get. I adore Nathan Lane. I, I really do. He's just got some problems. He's one of those actors that comes on stage and the lights are on and he's like, da-da! And he would walk off stage, and as soon as it got dark, his whole demeanor, he just went, and he, like, deflated, and would walk up to his dressing uh-huh. room. And, and, and I always wanted to go up to him and go, why, Nathan, you are so brilliant, you know? But they, so I always say the tortured comedians, and, and poor Nathan was tortured, and he was going through a lot of stuff. And, and, uh, and so I don't mean to be talking bad about him, but, and I'm not, I'm not. I'm really just saying what it was. It yeah. just, he just had issues, and it, it's sad because he's so brilliant, he's so good, and I just adore him. So that's how I got back. To, that's how I was doing hair, and that's what saved my ass in New York doing that because it paid me a lot of money. I went on the road. Now, this is how I got my CDs done. So I went on the road thinking, and my agent really was not happy that I did this, but I wanted to do these CDs. So when you got on the road, you make you know 10 times the amount of money you make in New York. Mm. And I gave up my apartment, gave up everything. So I didn't have rent to pay, and I just bankrolled every bit of money that I could bankroll. Now, on Cats, I was in Cats. I was out on, on Old Deuteronomy and Cats, and that was a nice bankroll. One of the funny things about Cats is Cats is one of those shows that everybody did. Everybody, you know, if somebody says I was in Cats, everybody just goes, yeah, yeah, who wasn't? And we all were in Cats. And, <laughs> and so that was one of the first shows that I really, my agent really wanted me to be in. And because... Old dude is a great role, and I loved it. And I tell you what, if it was still on, I would still be sitting on that tire today because it was one, it paid really well, and two, it's it's the actor's dream. You get to dress up and you get to put on a lot of makeup and run around and be something entirely crazy, yeah, like a cat. And so, uh, so it was fun for me, and it's a much more fun show to be in than it is to watch, I think. But Cats had a following that was really kooky because people would show up to the theaters when we were on the road dressed up in their favorite cat outfits. None were ever dressed as Old Deuteronomy. They all loved Mistopheles and Grizabella and uh, uh, um, oh, Little White Cat, whatever her name was. I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen cats. Oh, well, please. I, I can't believe you haven't because everybody in the world has seen it and their children have seen it. Now I can't believe have I haven't it. been in cats. So actually, I can't see. Been, so you, know, <laughs> you could have. You could have. And I, I may have. Who, who knows? You might have. You just don't realize. I just don't it. remember. It you was, don't remember. It, was in the it 80s. probably happened in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, course. it was. It was. I. You know. I. And and for me, the cats experience was was short lived because they closed after I got in and and I said cats. It says cats now and forever. What part of now and forever do you not understand? <laughs> I get it. I know what that means. Come on. But uh, I had auditioned for it for so long. So many times, and I would, one, traditionally, it's a black role. Okay. So when that happens, um, you know, they get a little, you know, people get a little, mm-hmm, you're not black, okay. Um, but because that, that role doesn't require it to be an African-American performer, 
because you're all made up. You don't know who what's under there. Okay. You know, you just don't know. Everybody's made up so completely different that you have no idea. So it's that that's not such a big role. Not like I was doing like uh, Joe or Jim in uh, Showboat. You know, singing Old Man River, where they would obviously know I was white. Um, but <laughs> but this, you know, there's there's no telling. And what's funny is that Ken Page, as as a friend of mine, is a African American performer on big Broadway royalty, and we were always at the same calls together. So it's like they couldn't decide if they were going to go black or or white with this. So they would bring in, you know, these performers down this road, and and it's either going to be this or this. So and, and and we would just laugh because there was a couple of us. There are not a lot of big character men in New York, and I I really wasn't as big as I am now. Uh, not that I'm big, <laughs> but it uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, a, but I was a character actor, and that kind of messed people up too because mm-hmm. I have a legitimate leading man voice, and I'm a character actor. So that you know, you can't go in there and do that because they just producers and directors just don't have vision beyond what they see and if you don't look like this then next you know they they're seeing so many people and if you don't you open your mouth and you're not right they go next even though you could be right they just don't have the vision beyond that you know you're not red you're blue oh okay so i can't have the role because i'm blue so i fought that with with cats a lot and i would get there and i would get all the way to the end they'd say the role is yours and then they come back to my agent and say, oh, well, the guy's not leaving. And then they had cats in Europe. So I was going back and forth between the European cast and, and, and the tour and Broadway. So, you know, it was always something. And I would go in and they would, you know, I had the high notes. I had, I had the dancing. I had everything down. And they'd be like, he's not leaving. I just, you know, for some reason, I didn't get it. So the last time I went in, I called my agent and said, you okay, they want to see you. And I said, no. No, you tell them no <laughs> that I'm not interested in going in. I do. They know what I can do. It's the role. Is the role available? So before I go in there, I want to know that this role is available, that they have it for a fact, guaranteed. This person is leaving, and I'm not going to show up. And they're going to go. Oh, he didn't leave. So she was like, I don't know if I can do that. I said, You do that. You're my agent. You do that. And they, she did, and I walked in and got the role. And finally, and uh, and then they closed. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. How long were you doing it before uh, they About closed? a year. Okay, so that's not a very long time. No, no, think. not for a role that I could have been doing for the past, you know, because the show ran 20-some-odd years, right. you know, and I could have been there. Ken Primus was in that role forever. And and it's one of those roles that as a character actor, you know there's not a lot of these. Yeah. And you're considered the star of the show, so you get top billing, and you get paid more, and, you you know, you have a, you have a great contract. So uh, I was looking to ride this tire for a while, a lot longer than I did. But um, but it, it it was incredibly fun. I really I really had a great time doing it, and it was uh, it was and all the kids, you know, the, I was the oldest one of all. I think I don't think there was anybody older than me. Most of all the other dancers were really young because they had to dance. This was hard dancing, mm. and on the road. You have to, as the old old dude, you have to do the opening stuff, and you have to dance. You can't on Broadway. You get to do this. You just do your hands, and you stand in the back, <laughs> and you move. You know, you do this. But on the road, because they they cut out like six cats, you have to fill in. I mean, you're in the back, and I and I mean, I can I could do all that. I you know I'm trained in theatrical dancing, but this was hardcore dancing. These people were dancers, and uh, and. <laughs> That was when I was. I remember my first couple of days of rehearsals. I thought, "Oh man, I can't do this. They're going to fire me because I can't do this." 
But but I did. You do it. Yeah. You know. You just do it. You just go through that period of doubt of of all of that, and there's a lot of stuff to learn. And but you do, I and mean, you just do it. So that's my cat story. It's a good story. It's a great story. And you can never point with your finger. You always have to point with your paw. That was my biggest, you know, <laughs> problem. That I always get these notes from the 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 stage manager, the whoever was watching the show. Would say you're pointing with your fingers, and you have to point with your paws. You had to point like this. You couldn't point like that. You had to point <laughs> like, oh God, my I'm pointing with my finger. <laughs> to go back is is mm-hmm. uh, how did you get hooked up with Michael? I'm going to try and say his name right, but you said if I don't say his name right, he's going to track me he down. He will right? track you down, which means Let we can me... get him on the show, so that would be an okay thing. So, so Michael it's like the Feinstein. piano. Yeah, so remember the piano. Just like but that. if I say it wrong, would he? If I say it right, will he come on our show? Because it would be great to have. I mean, that would be bad. I, I, all you have to do is ask. I think. All right. I think you know Michael does a lot of stuff that you'd be surprised, but I. I'm surprised that he did. I was like, really? Wow. Wow. Okay. So how did you get that? How did that connection happen? You really want the truth? Or do you want me to tell you a made-up story? (laughs) Which is better? The truth. The truth is always the best. Let's go with the truth. I mean. That's in comedy. The truth. There's nothing funnier than the truth. This is music life radio, and and life is about truth. Okay. So I, uh, I had been listening to Michael for years. I knew exactly who he was. I loved his voice. I loved his piano playing. I, I just loved him. I loved him. And I didn't know a lot about him as a person and as a musician. And this is how I got hooked up with Rosemary Clooney and, mm-hmm. and the people I got hooked up with and B. Arthur and all that. I was living in New York and a friend of mine uh, who's a house painter that we did paint. It was a brilliant artist, not just a house painter, but he painted beautifully. He uh, did faux finish art and all that kind of stuff. Wanted to be an actor. And so he was living with us. And he had gone to this party at Tommy Toon's house. And I couldn't believe my friend was getting all this invitations to all these wild people's homes. And like, how is that happening? How are you doing that? So, but he was cute and everybody wanted him. So he came home the next day. He'd, he'd gone out and he came home the next day at like nine o'clock. And I said, oh my God, must have been a great party. You score. Who did you? Hmm. And he said, well, I met somebody. And I went, oh, really? Who did you meet? <laughs> and he opened up and he said, who cut your hair? Because I love your haircut. I need to find somebody to cut my hair. I said, oh. And I said, he said, oh, my, my housemate, my roommate does it. Uh, he works on Broadway. And he said, do you think you'd do my hair? And he said, well, I'll ask him. I said, well, who is this? And he opened up a napkin and said, Michael Feinstein. And wow. I went, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Then I, was, then I got really nervous now because I'm like, oh, God. And I said, okay, call him, tell him, yes, here's, come to call me. And he called me, and, and he, I said, I'm at the St. James Theater, you know, come meet me here at 4 o'clock or whatever time. But I wanted to make sure it was when people were coming in as he would be finishing, when people were coming in so people would know that I'd done <laughs> I wanted to show these little, hot little Broadway, because all, everybody in Tommy was really young, and they were little snots, and they were... They were very young. Let's just keep it at that. Okay. I don't want to go too far down that road. So, but I want them to know. Ha ha! Look who I know. Now, in Tommy was Lisa. The assistant choreographer was uh, assistant choreographer was Lisa Mordente, who was Cheetah Rivera's daughter, who was yeah. Liza Minnelli's best friend. So Liza was always hanging out, smoking in the state because Liza. They would say you can't smoke back here. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. So Michael. So I thought I'm going to show them. Ha ha ha. And and he was cute. I mean, he's a doll. And he was very sweet. And and uh, so I said, look, I, you know, I'm a hairdresser, but I'm also a singer. I, I have to tell you, your music really 
has touched me, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten laid to your, you know, while your music is going on. And, and he said, I hear that all the time, you know, <laughs> I really do. And, and we just all of a sudden we connected right then and there. It was like we were instant best friends. And I couldn't believe that I was talking to this very sweet, very kind person. Well, there's so much to Michael that we don't know that you don't know about. He's a savant. He doesn't really read music that well. He reads music, but not really well. And he would say to me, can you play this? And I'd play it for him, and then he would play it. Then he could play it. He could hear oh, it off wow. the radio. He can play it. Okay. That's how he learned Rhapsody in Blue. He just listened to it and played it. Rhapsody in Blue. Not, you know, some Kirschman tune. Rhapsody in Blue. So he became an inspiration to me, and I said, now look, it's really, really important that you know I want you as my friend because I like you and I love you as my friend not what you can do for me in my career. And I'm not looking for that. I mean, and it was hard for me to say that because I really needed some help. I really wanted to boost in my career. But I cherished him more as a musician and as, a, as, a, as an artist than, right. and my friend than I did, you know, what can you do for me? Because I knew enough people who could do that. And, and he did anyway. He helped me a lot. He, he opened the door for me. And I got to sing with him on TV. I got to go places that I never would have gone before, you know, to the White House. And one year, one summer, uh, my partner gave me a birthday present of uh, two weeks at Michael's in L.A. And so he said he was getting an honorary doctorate uh, from UC Cal something, wow. one of the UCLA is something. He and Billie Jean King at the same time, which I thought was very funny. And uh, he was also doing something with Jerry Herman. They were giving Jerry Herman an award and he was presenting there. And two or three things happening, big things that I got to go to and be, you know, be in the limo with him or in the really cool place. And, uh, oh, and his agent threw him this huge party for this doctrine. And I got to sing at that. And, and he, you know, introduced me and in this home, sitting around the piano, singing with Michael Feinstein, playing the piano for you. You know, it's amazing. So, that's where now on Broadway, B. Arthur did a lot of the Broadway cares, equity fights, AIDS things. They would, they would get a star to come in. Somebody knew somebody and they'd say, Hey, could you come and just, mm -hmm. you know, walk on stage and go, hi, I'm here. You know, you're at the end number and look who came out, B. Arthur. So we had done a couple of those things with her and she had showed up and, and, and was the special surprise guest on our number or somebody's number. And so she, I kind of knew her, but she, <laughs> She was a hoot. And she we were standing in the circle, and in the circle was Jerry Herman. You know who Jerry Herman is? No. Oh God. <laughs> he wrote Hello Dolly. You know that? Okay, okay, musical. okay. So he's the he's the the last of the big musical writers. Okay. You know, musicals after Jerry Herman, they they took a turn. And Sondheim, the influence of Sondheim and, and Stephen Schwartz and those people, the sing sung the Les Mises where you sing through the whole show, that kind of stuff took over and so he's like considered the last of the big show writers and the big showstopper numbers. And so it was Jerry Herman, Carol Channing, mm -hmm. B. Arthur, me, Michael, uh, and some lawyer type people and uh, an HBO producer. So we're all in the circle. And this was who was hanging around the next couple of nights. And B. Arthur just latched onto me like I was her best friend. Now, I thought she was sick. She was drunk as hell. Drunk, drunk, drunk. And and. And I don't know how she got on stage and performed and did what she did, but boy, howdy, these, it's like Carol Channing, 
you know, she's 600 years old. She's as old <laughs> as dirt. I don't get it. We were doing a Macy's Day Parade. And, you know, they do the Broadway shows before the parade. And so we, we would do our show. And what we would do is get everybody ready. Then I would run and get on the float. So I'm getting everybody ready for Beauty and the Beast, I think it was. And and they were doing Hello, Dolly on on on, uh, on Broadway, another 18th revival. And Carol was was in it. And so there she's standing. Now... She looks like she's dead. I'm not kidding you. She's just standing there, kind of slumped over, and they're blocking for camera, you know? And it's it's a hundred and I mean it's it's like freezing outside. It's like fifteen right. degrees. And we're all freezing. And the little hairdresser next to me, who was her first show, her first time in New York, her first time dealing with anything theatrical, a little lesbian girl, she didn't know anything. And she said, Stephen, do you think if I ran up to Dolly and tucked up her hair because her hair's her gray hair was sticking out of her wig, and that's a big no-no in uh, in any kind of uh, union show. You only do this, and if this falls apart, you don't help. You just stand there and do your thing because other people do that, and that's their responsibility. And you can't ever cross. Right. You know, I can't put on a coat for you because that's the dresser's job. I can't adjust the light because that's the lighting guy. So she said, "Do you think she'd mind if I tuck?" And I said, "No, but that guy standing over there." His, his name was Tiv. Now, he looked like, what's the old, the guy from the Oak Ridge Boys with the long beard? Him. Oh, he I looked remember, yeah. just like him. He looked like his twin brother. And I said, no, but he will come and knock you down flat if you touch her or touch her wig. So I said, I'll tell him. And I told, because I knew him. And I just said, Tiv, you might want to tuck her up here. But they were, they were just standing there and said, okay, now this one's for camera. Ready? All of a sudden, the music got, you know, it was all canned music. The music started, and all of a sudden she went, hello. <laughs> you just went, what was that? She was completely, like, it was like a battery. Like, you know, she was some sort of battery-operated thing, and they turned the switch on, and she I'm on. It was the freakiest thing. And so and now here I am standing with her talking, and she's telling these horrible stories, and B. Arthur is just holding on to me for dear life. And she's talking to me like she's my best friend. And I'm like, you don't even know who I am. Holly, you don't even know what's going on here. So she was funny. I loved her. And and I met that say at the party, uh, uh, Betty White was there. I got to sing oh, for Betty. I met amazing. all the Golden Girls. I'm like, God, I, you know, I knew Estelle Getty from Broadway. So I, you know, I knew them all. I was like, this is amazing. My my Golden Girl circle is now complete. That is so cool. <laughs> But Michael, Michael was responsible for me meeting Rosemary Clooney and working, not necessarily with her, but being able to be with her uh, at, at times that were just amazing. Just so unbelievable. How old were you when you got to go to the cabaret camp? Like 97. So I was 37, 30 okay. years old. Does that... I'm 50, so I'm 55. Okay. So do, do they still do the cabaret camp? Yes. That is yes. amazing. That's so cool. I yeah, mean, I just... cabaret symposium. Mm-hmm. What an amazing opportunity, though, to, to be able to study under all those people. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting in a room with Margaret Whiting. And you, Margaret Whiting is the daughter of Richard Whiting, but she's also the keeper of all of Johnny Mercer's music. He wrote, you know, he wrote a ton of music for her. And so, you know, these people, here they sit. And you're getting their wisdom, and they're just giving it to you. Well, it was $1,000 a week, but they gave it to you anyway. <laughs> and you got a one-on-one coaching with all of them for an hour. You that's, had an hour coaching with each, each one of them. That's those. worth, I mean, way more than a thousand dollars. That's priceless. Yeah, it was priceless. I mean, and I have to tell you, uh, there's a, a difference in that time period 
when you look at this music and and what these people were artists and they I mean there's the the luck involved is more about who you know. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I tell everybody. I said don't let anybody fool you. It's about who you know. Trust me, that is a huge part of it because there are people on Broadway that should never be on Broadway. Yeah. Or never be singers and be and out there singing. And there's no oh, I, every, every entertainment field is filled with those it's, people. It's filled with it's, that. It's and, not yeah. just Broadway. It's, no, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, and it's really sad and it's because you know, because I swallow, you know, who knows what hey. the reason is that whatever got you there, you know, those people, you just go, what, who did you blow to get this job? Wow. I, I, I just can't get over that. And, 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 and you know, I see movies and just go, why did you, why would you cast Uma Thurman in the producers when you have people who were brilliant <laughs> that could have done that job? They didn't need a star name. They had Nathan, they had Matthew. They didn't need Uma Thurman. She wasn't such a huge draw. I, I, I shouldn't say this, but I, every time I see Tom Cruise in a, on a film, I go, why? 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 Who you know? does he, who, uh, does he know something that we don't know? Does he know where the bodies are buried? You know, no. I, I don't, I don't understand things that I, I, and I won't ever. And maybe I won't know until I die. And maybe then maybe even God is up there going, I right. don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but again, you know, there's people who have access to that. There's mm-hmm. people who know people, and then there's, there's people, people, but they exactly. still, at some point, you have to be able to... You have to have some uh, modicum of talent. Yeah, there's got to be something there. Yeah, you have to... There's got to be something I, there. I, I, one of the things that I always said to myself, and I most things that I prided myself in was, I was not going to be that person. I wanted to be, I wanted to make it because I had a gift, because I had a talent. Because somebody recognized what I had, not because you know I was willing to you know do something to say something, and 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 I and that was tough in New York because everybody in New York is looking for their hook to get in, right, right. And so everybody, you you question people who are your friends because everybody wants something from you, right. And once people knew that I knew people that I had worked with celebrities or that I knew people, all of a sudden these people are my friends that were never my friends before, and they would say could you give this to Michael for me? Or could you give this to Rosemary? Or could you give this to Liza? Or could, you know, could you give me like, no, I can't. Because I don't even give him my stuff. You know, I don't want that. I don't have that. I don't want to do that. Unless it was my idea. And then I would say, hey, you should go hear this person. Have you Mm -hmm. heard them? Come on, let's go see the show. You know, and I I could do it that way. But I would never do, I would never do that. And I didn't want to be that person. And the more... I got buried into New York and Broadway and that the backstage onstage stuff. Uh, the 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 worse it got, and the more people you know you found were just looking for the next job. And people be talking to you, looking at the next gig. You know, they'd be like, mm-hmm. "Now, now you were trained classically trained to do opera, though, too, yes. right?" Yes, that's my training. Now, mm-hmm. why did you not pursue that? Was that I mean, was cabaret kind of always the eye in the prize, or? No, um, in a, in a, yes and no. I mean, yes, I liked, uh, cabaret was something that was very dear to me, but opera, opera was too, but I didn't like the people. Okay. I did not, I couldn't deal with that. I mean, it wasn't that I couldn't speak the languages or I couldn't learn the music, I mean, that wasn't the issue. The issue was I had to deal with these, these. Well, the, yeah. the term prima donna comes from opera though, doesn't it? Oh yeah, sure. And I think sure. that. There's a song called I Want to Be a Prima Donna. (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to be a prima donna, donna, donna. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, I, I honestly, uh, I, I couldn't deal with it. I, I just could not deal with the pretentiousness and the, just the, the whole fakery of it. Okay. Just, so as, uh, as brutal as, as Broadway was, opera was, was worse. Opera, well, Broadway, you know, they'll stab you in the back, but they'll tell you they're going to do it too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm going to stab you in the back. And they did. Oh, opera, they won't. You know, opera's just like those, the opera stories. You know, it's all mystery and secret mm. and, you know, people doing horrible things to you. And, and, and it's about money. It's about greed. And I, I don't like that, you know? Well, there's big, big money. I mean, at least there was an opera. There, there, there still is. I had a friend who was, who was uh, at the Met, on the roster at the Met, and she was uh, the Aida. And she was covering for... Uh, Aprilia Milo, who was a nutbag, and travels with her psychiatrist. So that tells you right there. You travel <laughs> with your psychotherapist, and and uh, you don't you think there's issues here? And so she had she had lots of issues, and so she didn't go on a lot. So my friend got to go on. Well, she was paid. Oh my god! I think she was paid thirteen thousand dollars a performance just to stand by, so uh-huh. just to hang out in New York and wait. Well, when she went on, she got like between thirty-five and forty grand. Wow! A night, a performance, and that's what, what year are you talking? Here this to? is I mean, this is about ten years ago. Wow! Maybe eleven, twelve years ago. Yeah. So so it's gone up even more then. So these people are making. I mean, nobody made the money that like Sills made or Pavarotti made. Yeah. You know, nobody made that, but because people were willing to pay for that. Wow. And and you know what they brought to opera and brought opera to the people was was priceless and that I and and they were good. That's yeah. just the thing. They were we don't have those singers anymore. There are none of those singers can touch that. And they 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 don't exist because people got greedy, the teachers, you know, everybody wanted to be Pavarotti, everybody wanted to soar up really high mm-hmm. and really fast and get the big money and be the big singer and and they weren't they weren't willing to do the work. And that's the thing is the foundation that you have to have to do that. Yeah, people weren't willing to do it. They didn't want to go through that. And they thought they could cut through it and do it another way. And where are those singers today? Gone. Gone. Just gone. They blew their voices out. Jesse Norman blew her voice out. We, don't, we haven't heard from her in years. She disappeared because she tried to sing everything and didn't have a good, te- didn't have good technique. And... I mean, I'm saying stuff that I probably shouldn't be saying, but that's what happened because these people aren't singing anymore, and she should be. Yeah, you know, and people become their egos get so huge that they think they can sing anything, and nobody can tell them anything, and and they throw fits on stage. And I mean, God bless Aretha Franklin, but you can't have the air conditioning on when she's in the house. Nowhere, and there's no air conditioning on because it affects my voice. That's that's bullshit. It doesn't. That kind of stuff doesn't <laughs> affect your voice. You affect your but voice. But it is Aretha. I mean, it's well, it's Aretha. Yeah, you know, come on, it's Aretha. But we had opportunities. If anyone could be a diva, it's her. I mean, it's, you know, hands yeah. down. I mean, it's, you're going to be sweaty, but you're going to work for it. But everybody's going to be wet. You know, a like lot you, of that is crap. It's just all crap. I sing, and the air conditioning doesn't affect me well, at all. Here's a question. I mean, you've got a, just a big booming deep voice how do you keep you should see my penis yes well maybe that'll be the next episode <laughs> you think this mic is big <laughs> x-tube, x-tube life video exactly cabaret x-tube <laughs> is uh hmm. 
What What are some things you do to preserve your voice? Because you, I mean, you've been singing for years and years and years, and you've been doing it. Uh, well, I I practice. Yeah. <laughs> I vocalize. I don't forget my foundations because that's what happens when you get busy and you're really working and you're yeah. singing. Uh, Marilyn Horn, who's a, an amazing opera singer, I don't know if you look her up, Google her. Uh, always said after her when during her season when she performed, she always took an entire month off to rest. Then she took an, and during that time she would be looking at a new role, and she went back to her voice teacher and got back in alignment because you develop bad habits, you know, as you travel and as you're touring, as you're getting somewhere. And you have to sing over something you don't feel good. And you start singing over something you find you can do this way. And so you need to go back to to get realigned. It's like getting your car tuned up. You know, right. you go and you do that. So I I do that. I'm very careful. And I also teach. So oh, okay. teaching helps me keep myself in shape. And uh, and then I'm passing it passing it on as well. Yeah. Because I I was lucky enough to have some of the greatest voice teachers. Uh, I think. Uh, that we, that were alive, uh, that were the last of the of the true artists, the sing of teachers, and uh, and I you can you know you can see people online who are who are skyping doing voice lessons on Skype, and I'm like, how can you do how that? How can you do a voice lesson? I mean, I just you, can't even. I, I I can't. I can even, barely have a conversation on Skype. I well, that's because you don't have your clothes on, and that's well, different. there's that too. Yeah, but it's it, it's um. I, I can't imagine not being in the same room with somebody because you don't hear everything. Yeah. Because it, when you hear the raw, pure sound of a voice, then you can hear what's happening and make the adjustments that need to be made. You, once you start singing through uh, a, you know, a computer microphone, you don't have a, a great vocal mic, so you're singing through your Skype mic on your, your laptop, <laughs> and it's oh, going God. through and then coming out on my <clears throat> iPad com, you know, speakers. How can you adjust somebody that way? You're like, look, it stinks. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, you could be singing in tune and it may not come across that way. You know, and so you have to, I can't imagine that, but it's all about that. And they charge $150 an hour. $150 an hour. For Skype. Yeah, for a voice, for a voice lesson. My God. Wow. I can't even, I remember my voice lessons were $6 an hour. $6. And that just tells you how old I am, too. But, well, you, you know, told us earlier, but we're going to go with. I've always said that uh, gay, gay men, <laughs> our age plateaus at 27. Uh-huh. 27? So, like, this 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 year, I'm celebrating the 20th anniversary that's of my 27th a, birthday. But it's see. just, 27 is just such a perfect that's place a perfect, for us. That's a perfect place. I'll stay there. I think I'm it's, gonna, our, you know, somewhere around our sexual and, and physical exactly. peak. I mean, it's it's really, it's. Ah, uh-huh. speak for yourself. Right. Well, my, 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 well, I'd say it's. I'm still celebrating yes, the 27. So, so exactly. I'm yeah. still peaking. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I can't actually see my dick, so I don't know. But uh, <laughs> like I said, well, that's, we'll have X-Tube video yeah, and we'll, exactly. we'll, do a, we'll do a follow-up for that. You have to go so. from the bottom up that, to get a good visual. So. <laughs> I had a friend they called Tripod. I'll let you just uh, uh, See, I worked yeah. with Arnold Vosloo. I've already seen it. <laughs> you've, you've met Tripod, I've apparently. I've met yes. them all. Yes, 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 indeed. I, I really do, uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about vocal technique and about the fact that we've got lazy singers and, uh, and, and we let them get away with, with behavior that's unbecoming of, of people and of singers and artists. And uh, I see it, you see it on Broadway, you see it uh, all over the place, you know, at these J-Lo's and 
uh, um, well, Mariah and all just the way they behave and think that they can show up four hours late just because they're Mariah. How can you do that? I well, don't the, understand ethics and things like that. I don't get it. Yeah, but that's like some of the people I'm enjoying like the, these days, like Adele. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear a singer who's singing. Uh, Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, people who are actually singing, you know, just soulful singing and just yeah. really beautiful. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's making music fun again. Making it fun. It's making they're they're bringing yeah. back instruments. I want to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's not all keyboard synthesized. There's a happy time coming when the boys come home. There's a glorious day coming when the boys come home. We will end this dreadful story of the battle dark and gory in a sunburst of glory when the boys come home. The day will seem brighter when the boys come home And our hearts will be lighter when the boys come home Wives and sweethearts will press them in their arms And caress them and pray God to bless them When the boys come home The thin ranks will be proudest when the boys come home And our cheer will ring the loudest when the boys come home The full ranks will be shattered and the bright arms will be battered And the battle standard tattered when the boys come home Their bayonets may be rusty when the boys come home And their uniforms be dusty when the boys come home But all shall see the traces of battle's royal graces In the brown and bearded faces when the boys come home Our love shall go to meet them when the boys come home to bless them and to greet them when the boys come home and the fame of their endeavor time and change shall not dissever from the nation's heart forever from the nation's heart nation's heart forever when the boys come home. When I was in New York in the 90s, I was a real snot about singers, especially in cabaret. I mean, I was like if you can't sing, I'm not going. If you if you're not a, you know what are you doing right. up here in front of a mic if you can't sing? And Tom, my my partner, said, "I'm going to take you somewhere and I'm going to slap this out of you if it kills me. The last thing I do, I'm going to slap that that attitude out of you and and show you what a real artist is." And I was like, "You can't teach me nothing. I know everything." So we go to the Oak Room and it's Julie Wilson, and she's really old. And she had about five notes left in her voice. And I just thought, oh, 
this is just going to be dreadful. This is going to be awful. It's the worst experience of my life. And I left a wet rag. Wow. This woman took me on a journey that I never knew could exist, that I never knew was possible. She changed my life so dramatically as a cabaret, as an artist, as a person. Because I'm telling you, she had five notes left in her voice, and she wrecked me every time. I was a crying i she took me on this journey that you would not believe and you know she she wears a big long sequin gown pulls her hair back and a little bun and a big gardenia and then she just goes and not once did she let up and she just kept mm, she nice. it's like tom said to her he's coming and you gotta you gotta fix this and she did and she was responsible for me completely doing a 180 Wow. Uh, and on, on how I perform and what I look for and what I listen for now and how I, how I look at people as artists. So now for me, it's, it's all about telling the story and it's about how you tell that story. Now I, I want you to sing in tune. Don't get me wrong. I, if you don't sing in tune, I am not, I'm not very forgiving. I'm not. Uh, we have computers for that, darling. But yes, I know, but <laughs> live, not live. They don't. And, if you can't do it then live, then you shouldn't be doing it. And uh, because that that makes my head turn like this, it makes me hurt. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. It's and brutal. I, you know, and I'm because I work really hard at singing in tune. I work. I, I don't work really hard at it because I sing in tune, but I worked hard at it, and I work hard to make sure that I sing in the center of the pitch, and I do all these things to make sure that that that's not the issue. And then, then I have foundation. I can tell the story. Then I can do that. And and then I try to tell the story on that, and that's that's my process and how I get through that. And and again, that's why I like cabaret so much because I I like I like this, you know. Even if I was singing just for the two of you, you know, I'd be thrilled if yeah. I could do that. I really and that's one of the things that I love about your show is is I I felt like you were singing right to me, and I, I there was an intimacy to it, and. It didn't. I don't think it would have mattered where I was in the room, how close to you I was, how far from you I was. Is mm-hmm. I felt like every song was for me, every story was for me, and and I don't mean that from the, the self centered point of view of an audience that is easy to take on, but it was mm-hmm. just you have that ability to translate your performance in a way that mm. really it just it just it, it just draws people in. I mean, it just it's, it's the nudity. Is that what it is? Because I'm naked through it. It's you know what that it's all about being and thank you. That's very kind of you and and uh, uh, I, the, I will take that with me forever because that's something I worked really hard at, at doing and accomplishing because that's not easy. Uh, I I had a voice teacher who said you need to take your voice and you need to wrap it around each person and you need to just cradle them in your voice mm. and I thought. You're a nutbag. No, I'm, <laughs> and I'm paying you. I thought, how am I going to do that? How do I do that? And it was my first time. I was having trouble in opera being heard over the orchestra. I had a big voice, but I, I was something I wasn't getting. And I had a, uh, a coach with this woman, and she said, I want you to sing to the neighbor's house. I want you to sing through these windows and to that house over there. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want you to think about Star Wars. So you, you, the Death Star, all those rays come out to about here, and then they hit together, and then they go straight out. So I think of this coning thing coming out in front of me as far as my arm will go, and then 
that's where my voice goes. And then the power goes from there. So it's bringing it all here and then shooting it out that way. And next thing you know, you know, freedom. I had freedom. And it's different for everybody because, you know, your voice is not like an instrument uh, that you can't touch it. It's not tangible, you know. And you're affected by depression. You're affected by smoke, by alcohol. Mm -hmm. You're affected by things. Uh, And so, huh? Oh, absolutely. My mood is a huge indicator. Absolutely. I I have to adjust my mood sometimes just to sing. I have to adjust my butt plug, but. That helps my mood. See, well, so, it all so, works. You know, you got to stop using the mayonnaise jars. Uh, yeah, I've got to <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Maybe back off and use like a squeezable ketchup uh-huh. thing or you something. Know, exactly. You know, exactly. Just... Well, I have squeezable mayonnaise now. The, uh, the uh, you. Uh... <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, you, what were we talking about? Oh, hopefully this won't be the takeaway from the interview for people. It's what like, are we talking about? I don't even remember what I'm talking about. Now. We had hit a Death Star. Oh, right. I don't know where I was going with that. Now. I just completely, the whole butt plug thing took me out of, out of my uh, mood, 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 mood and mood. music. You're yes. affected by, there's so many things that affect you. A piano or an instrument, when you put your finger on here and you push this, it's always going to do this. Right. Always. It's always going to be there. Uh, you know, all you do is breathe through it or press through it or hit it. So there's, there is some control there, but with your voice, you don't know on a day to day basis. So that's why you have to know what's going on inside of you. And when you're teaching, and I've, I've found this out as I teach and as I work with kids and young people and anybody who will pay me, uh, you have to come up with different, what works for you may not work for you, what may not work for me. You know, so you have to come up with images to to figure out to get somebody to open up their throat to to show them where volume is, to show them where this is too dark and this is too bright. You know, from forward to back to swallow to this. So you have to learn what that perfect place is, and that comes from daily working. It comes from daily looking at your posture, looking at your, you know, are you relaxed? Are you tense? Are you this? Are you that? You know, uh, you have to do that every day. Find, notice it in your day. When you're driving your car, if you are gripping the wheel, all of a sudden you're, this is tension. And next thing you know, you're like, and then you have road rage. So you have to really, uh, this is all Alexander technique, which is what I, is based on what I, my Alexander technique is, is kind of what I use. Mm-hmm. I'm not a complete Alexander guru person, but uh, I use a lot of their philosophy in, in my singing, you know, and it's all about being natural and, and what have you. But uh, it, it, the one thing I can always say in, in my juries, in my uh, work, whenever I came in anywhere, people always would say, oh, my God, you look like a singer. Wow, thank God you look like one. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I hope I sound like one because I want to do more than look like it. But that's really important, you know. And you, But then you have to learn to relax into that and use, again, Use that, and it all comes with practicing, 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 practicing. Mm-hmm. And you just do it over and over and over and over again. You just do it until I would sit on the subway, do it, going to school in Boston on the you know on the green train or in New York, and you're just sitting and you'd be like going over your dialogue and you'd be like uh, adjusting yourself, and you just have to do it in the car or wherever you know. Although I don't ever sing in the shower, never. I I've love, never sang in the shower. Oh God, I, I know, that. I know. So many people are like, I love singing in the shower. I never 
Because I sang everywhere else. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Some of my greatest hits have come out of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my greatest life moments and, were in the shower, but well, what's, what's, they weren't singing. <laughs> where, where we live is you can actually hear me in the hallway when I sing in the shower. And oh. sometimes David will come home and go, you know, everyone can hear you in the hallway. said, so, yes, but I'm in the shower right now. So none of that matters. Doesn't matter. Like there's something of it's such a sacred space yeah. that it's like mm-hmm. I. It doesn't matter how silly I sound. Mm-hmm. This is my if. So I hope they enjoyed it. I hope you, you loved know, it. Time to leave a tip jar out there and just <laughs> fill it up. Not, not a bad mm-hmm. idea, actually. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious. Is is there anybody you haven't worked with that, or, or or performed with that you'd really like to someday? Oh my God! Yes, there's so many. There's so many. I'd love to work with Sandy Patty. I don't know if you know her. She's mm-hmm. a Christian singer. Google Sandy Patty's Star Spangled Banner. Okay. It was right before Whitney Houston. I'm telling you, it's it's a game changer. Uh, she's an amazing artist. Somebody I always wanted to sing with Bill Gaither. I always wanted to sing with those people because that's my that's my background. That's my upbringing. And people, it's funny because people are like, "How can you be a gay Christian?" I don't get that. That does that's not that's not possible. Like. Well, yes, it is, and and that's my background, and that's my mm-hmm. that's what my found part of my foundation is part of my life. So I would I would love to be able to sing openly with these people. I would love to have sang with Rosemary Clooney. I would love to have had that happen, but that's not going to happen. I would love to work with David um, Foster. David Foster. I would love to you know have him say, "Hey, I wrote a song for you," you know. But that those are the big gigantic fantasies. Uh, I, I also like working with wonderful young artists who are just happening, who have mm-hmm. ide- brand new ideas, and I like I like being around that as well. But I, I, uh, I've been really lucky. I've worked with a lot of people, uh, and uh, and there are a lot of people that I don't ever want to work with. You know, yeah. Well, we, I'm going to ask you that list, but yeah, have I'll you ever tell you with, though? <laughs> have you ever worked with Ben Midler? Uh, <laughs> yes. I yes, just, I, 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 you know, when you brought her up is the first time I ever saw her sing, it was a, it was some kind of TV thing. And she sang John Prine's, uh, that, that song, I am an old woman. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mid- I forget the, the uh, name. yes. It oh, was welcome. one of the most moving and huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, oh, I mean, it just it blew me away. Mm-hmm. It completely blew me. Away. And I, I didn't expect that voice from her. Yeah. Well, you know, she started out of Broadway. You know, yeah. you know, she was in Fiddler on the Roof. That was her first big show. She was Hava or Huddle. I don't remember. She was one of the three girls that had songs. Um, and you know, she's the, you know, she's trained. Uh, she's the, she is who she, you know, she's Bette Miller. Her, her, she got her big, her big start was in the baths. In the gay bathhouse. Yeah, in the right bathhouse. And Barry Mallow was her piano player. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Barry Mallow, who looks like Joan Rivers now. What is that? <laughs> I would like to work with Barry. I would, or Richard Carpenter. You know, I would like to work with him because their I, I, their arranging skills are just. That's what I love. I love arrangements, mm-hmm. and I don't have that that quality or that ability. And I would love to have worked with with one of them just to, you know, sing some of those lush things. You know, but that those people, I like. I like that. Well, we talked about this interview almost a year ago, mm-hmm. and then you had a whole bunch of stuff happening yeah and i don't know if you want to talk Life. about that at ah. all but i mean I, i'm just wondering also is is that gonna artistically i mean emotionally do you feel something coming out of this that's gonna 
Yeah, well, because a lot of stuff that has happened, one was very gradual, physically that has happened to me, but as far as losing my father uh, and uh, my mother, uh, what was really interesting uh, and sad and scary is that my mother, we just buried my father, so it's May, Uh, and I stayed on about a week or so after that just to... so she wouldn't be completely alone at that last moment, and uh, uh, she went to the she went to the doctor, and she was like, "Okay, you know," she was being very secretive, and I thought, "What's going on with you? What's what are you going to the doctor? What's going on? What is oh, just my checkup?" And I'm like, mm, "That's not right to me. You can't fool me. You can't lie to me." And uh, she found out she had breast cancer at 84, and fortunately, it's not the uh, they said, if you're going to have cancer, this is the one to have. Mm. So they went in they just last week and did a lumpectomy, and they did the radiation right then and there so she wouldn't have to go through weeks of that. But she got the phone call saying, ah, we didn't get it all. So she has to go back in. Okay. So she's with my sister out at the beach, and they're, you know, they're trying to take care of her and relax and keep her calm. Uh, my mother is, though, is a strong marine wife from the South. And you can't knock those women down. You cannot do that. They just, nothing will knock that the tar out of that woman. And she comes from good country stock women. These women were uh, rough, strong. Uh, you, man, my mother was the girly one of all. All the sisters and, and all that. She was the pretty one and the, had the talent. And my mother's extremely beautiful. And uh, well, that's, that area is a lot of Scotch Irish yeah, settled there too. That's, absolutely, I, absolutely. I've got a little bit of that. That's some. That's a really tough group of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and just, and American Indian is the other side okay. of that. So she's we have Cherokee big time, and she's got a lot of that. So uh, and her mother, my grandmother, Mima Carter, nothing faced that woman. She lived to be ninety six and dyed her hair red up until the last year <laughs> of her life, and she go outside and hack up a snake crawling up her her flagpole <laughs> no problem ring a chicken's neck and throw it at you and say puck at we're gonna eat it for supper okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh so so we found that out but you know i found out that i have i mean i've always had this issue with my heart there was something wrong with my heart and we finally figured out what was wrong with my heart and dealing with that uh caused it's caused some stuff but then on top of that having atrial fibrillation and it's chronic, so it never stops. It's always jiggling. Uh, then I found out, and you know, I kept having other things going, issues, and I that I thought were AFib oriented. And you know, I kept telling my cardiologist, uh, "What the hell's going on with me? Why have I? You know, I can't breathe. I'm I'm having trouble singing long phrases. I'm like passing out in the middle of a song. What's going on? What's wrong with my lungs?" And I thought I was having you know asthma or something. And I, and he kept saying, "Well, let's." Try this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. So he systematically ruled out every possible thing that it could be until the last thing that we didn't want it to be, and it was. And it's called PAH, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension, which means the arteries in the veins in my lungs are collapsing, and and there's nothing they can do about it. Nothing, except put you on very very expensive medication to slow the process down. But what it has done is it's caused me to that. So the blood now is not being pumped through my body at all. And so oxygenated blood is not getting to where it needs to get to. And so it's, you know, things are slowly kind of going. 
And so I'm having to readjust all of my music where I normally I could just hold a phrase with no problem. You know, I'm, I'm having to breathe much differently. And, and that affects how you tell the story. You know, if you're breathing every third word or you can't hold out a phrase. But I looked at Rosemary Clooney. She's really a good uh, example of this because she had lung cancer and lung stuff. And she told these stories without these long phrases. You know, so I have to I have to really go back and rethink some of these songs and 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 say, can I still communicate this material? Is it going to work without these long phrases and without these beautiful moments? And yes, you can. And I can still hit. It's not like I can't sing it, but it um, but it's going it. It's not I'm not going to be able to soon. I say soon. You know, I don't know what that means, but. Uh, I feel it. I can feel it. And so mm-hmm. that's why it's important to me that I'm recording and getting stuff down. And uh, <laughs> my father, I wanted to do a, a tribute to my father uh, for all the hymns that he loved. Because in the last years, I would just go home and sing hymns to him. I'd just hold his hand and just sing, sing hymns because that's what he liked. And uh, so I told my mom, I said, I want to do a, a hymn CD for Pop. And she goes, well, you better, you better hurry. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Okay. But I I didn't hurry on that because of the life got in the way and my my own physical things started uh, affecting me and I so it didn't happen. But I'm doing that. So as soon as I leave here, literally tomorrow or Thursday, I'm going back to Vegas. I start the rehearsal process for that with this musical director oh, wow. that, I, that I'm working with. And then in October, my band is going to get together and we're going to uh, work with them. And we I'm working with a guy named Dave Hanbury, who's our recording engineer there, but he's also a, a a, a musician and he worked with um oh god what was her name oh she was so amazing and she died so young um not nancy lamott that's the only name in my head I, i'll come up with it in a second uh, dc singer Bru- oh god you would love her you would love her um and he got a lot of stuff of hers on tape before she died which is great so they were able to release a lot of this of her her work she played at blues alley a lot um but so we're going to go there. We're going to record that and get that down. And um, and like I said, I'm doing my show in January here for the um, the Taiwan Ballet. And Nick Dong has been really instrumental in my not letting this get me down, not letting this stop me. And he he's the one who keeps saying to me, "Nothing can stop you. Don't let this. Don't let this do this. You keep going, and you just figure it out." And you keep going. And so uh, when he called me that this piece that that he's doing, this installation he's doing in China right now, in Taiwan, um, is, is 10 pieces. He called me, a, I've been here about a month, so he called me like six weeks ago and said, I'm putting all the pieces together <laughs> for this show, and I need you to write the music for each piece, you know, each one of these pieces needs two minutes of a song, but we're only going to do a little show. So just do one minute of music. And I said, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Write the music for this. Piece? I, I love this story. Cause I've what? heard this. Yeah. And I was just like, what, what are you talking about? And he said, uh, cause he had hired this guy to write music for it. And it was like, I didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And he also turned out to be, you know, a mess. And just not not the right person, and, and so I don't want to scar him too much. Um, but he, it turned out to be you know some other issues and things just didn't go well. And I told Nick, just cut it off here, 
you know, figure out some, something else out. I didn't know I was going to be that, figure out something else. I didn't know that was me. And he called me on a Tuesday, and I said, well, when do you need it? He said, well, we're, the opening is Friday. I said, you want me to write 10 pieces for this, for your, that I don't even know anything about. I know two of them or three of them. And you want me to write music for, for these? What are you talking about? Oh my God. And, and I got, I got really frightened. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't, I'm not a composer. I don't know what, then I went, but I'm connected to Nick. Like I'm connected to Michael Feinstein. Well, I have this connection that's very spiritual and very, I I know what they're thinking. I yeah. you know I can pick up the phone and go what, what's going on? And what do you want? I know you're trying to get in touch with me, and and I don't talk a lot about that because it weirds people out. Because I was with my mother, my father had just died, and we were talking, and I'm looking at my mother to the right, and she I'm talking to her, and all of a sudden over here comes my father, and it turned me around, and he was walking right past us, and I could see him in his pajamas, and he was young. And I saw him, and I went, oh, my God, Mom. And she said, what, what? I said, it's Pop. And she went, what? You can't, how come I can't see him? <laughs> because you're mean. That's why. Because <laughs> you're mean. You're a mean old lady, and they can't see dead people. <laughs> and, and, and then we had, we had, because we went up to the top, and we, he had the lid <laughs> open only for the family. And that was it, because my dad was real nuts about this. He didn't like that. He didn't want people looking at him. And he's laying there. And we, you know, I'd gone in and set up the pictures, and I had a moment with him. And, you know, it, it wasn't my dad. It was just this shell of whoever this was. And so I go get my mom. I said, are you ready? Come on. Come on in. And so my sister and I and, and my brother and my other sister, we, all, we carried my mom. Well, not carry her, but we, you know, help her up there. And, and we're looking at her, and she's like, my sister's, my older sister, who's a nurse and deals with this all the time. She's, you know, trying to be the the big sister and see mom, it's okay, it's pop. Right. And she's rubbing his head, and I'm like, stop that. Stop doing that. <laughs> That's just gross. She, she's, and she's, you know, holding on to my mom and trying to be the big sister. And my mother said, oh, my God, he just looks terrible. And I said, he's dead, mom. What did you expect him to look like? <laughs> and... I mean, that's my sense of humor, and she hates that. She hates my humor. She just hates it. She's like, ah, oh, you. So, uh, oh, my God, I, I, I got way off track. So how do we get to that from singing hymns to my dad? Um, well, we were talking about Nick, and I, I just oh, want oh, to mention for people listening is, is Nick Dong is, is an amazing artist from Taiwan who now lives in the United States. Mm-hmm. Here in San Francisco, Oakland. In, yeah, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Does a lot of incredible work with metal, but also mm-hmm. does uh, installation, I guess, art would be mm-hmm. the best. Almost yeah. installation slash performance. Performance, yeah. Slash experience art. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 really multidimensional. He's been in the Smithsonian. Uh, with Which is the piece that the Enlightenment Room, which I'm the voice of, the Enlightenment Room, and it's all vocal. It's no. It's a wonderful it's, experience. Yeah. It's it's pretty impressive, and that that that's there as well. They took the Enlightenment Room as well as these other pieces. So I I've been working with him for a long time now, and uh, I never thought that you know I never thought that that's where this relationship was going. Mm-hmm. That I would be working with him. I thought I was just going to be a devotee, you know, this world class artist who is absolutely grounded, focused, centered. You know, uh, this wonderful young man appeared in my life, and I just went, boom, you know, it just hit me. And I, I, uh, I connected with him on, a, on such a level 
that, I, like I said, I did with Michael Feinstein. There's not a lot of people I connect like this with where I I I get it and I get them and I yeah. communicate with them. And Michael is very spiritual and very cosmic oriented and astral planed and all that stuff. And 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 we would meditate together and we would do work like that together a lot. And Nick is from the Buddhist angle, and you know, and being a Christian, uh, it had. You know, I had issue with that, but I also had studied kabuki theater, and my kabuki teacher was the. And to be a kabuki actor, you have to be a master of very many things, and one of them is this writing called sumie, and his writing was the way of Buddha is the way of God, and that's when my light went off and went. Wait a minute, this is much bigger than any of us can actually imagine, and for me, and I, I just said this is all encompassing. We're not all doing different things. We're doing the same thing, but in a way that we understand. So this is how they understand. I think, you know, people put a box on God and say, you know, it's only this way, and this is the only way it can be done. And I go, well, I don't think, I think our God is pretty much bigger than that and way better and more intelligent than we are. And, and it would appear to Aboriginal people in a way that they would understand because they don't understand what we understand. And so for me, it, it was a big enlightening moment put that room into play here and to have that kind of enlightenment with somebody and with Nick and to have him be able to talk incredibly gut level, uh, honest with, with me. Uh, and not a lot of people get to do that. I don't allow a lot of people in my, that part of my life. And, uh, it was, it was amazing because he can, he can say things to me that, uh, you know, slap me out of my, he doesn't coddle me or make, you know, baby me or, or you know let me be the diva artist he, that doesn't happen uh well, you know we work really hard and he's like no do this again no that's not right but whatever it was i did i knew what he wanted when he when i hung up the phone i i knew what he wanted i just did it yeah. and i didn't stop i didn't uh i didn't hesitate i just did it and i said here you go this is it and jeff his partner his husband called me and said oh my god Oh my God, that was so perfect. How did you do that? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. It's, it's a gift. And I just said, because I knew what you wanted. Because I knew. Intrinsically or spiritually, I don't know. It, it's what I wanted, what he wanted. And so then, coming back to that, Nick wanted more. Now, this time it was like, okay, now I want this to be, I want two instruments here and I want more sound here. And then we're going to have this, these 10 pieces are going to go solo two minutes all the way around. And then, they're all going to sing together. There's going to be a, a mass, a cacophony of just craziness for a minute here, then duets of these things, and then the finale of the last 30 seconds of everything, all the, you know, the fireworks going off at once, and then a little drum roll at the end. Hit, and that's how it ends. So it's, it's really cool, and it took me a while to get the cacophony of sound right. That wasn't easy to make madness work. So yeah. that's, that's cool. If people want to contact you, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want voice lessons, if they want you to sing, uh, where do they do that? How do they do that? How do they connect with you? My email is my name. It's s.carterhicks at gmail. No hyphen. I'm 55 and still have my hyphen. <laughs> but I'm bummed. Uh, through that, uh, through through that, or on, on Facebook, Stephen Carter Hicks. You can Facebook Perfect, me. perfect. The final question we ask a lot of people is, uh, what does music mean to you? When everything else is gone, music will still be here. Mm. 
Music is in our lives and you don't realize it. It's everywhere. It's in the trees. It's in the, if you stop, if you just stop and listen, you can, you can hear it in the, in all around you. So it, it encompasses my entire life. And if anything were to go, if I, I always wonder, you know, if I could lose a sensation like a sight or singing or hear, hearing would be the one thing that would kill me. I could be blind, but I have to be able to hear music. I have to be able to hear it. You know, I'm one of those people that I can't listen to it when I drive because I analyze it and I mm. drive right off the road. So music is really important to me. It it is my foundation. It's my uh, it it's my what makes me cry. It's what helps me be emote. It uh, it's everything. Thank you, and thank you for thank you. doing this interview. And and um, again, Can I put my for- clothes on now. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm ready yet. I just, you know, we still have some mayonnaise left. I but I just, I just want to say is, is I can't say enough for people listening to this. Is, is please, if you have a chance to see Stephen perform, please go see him perform. You can, you can see me on YouTube. Find me on YouTube as well. Well, start on YouTube, but yeah, but live, but live is just, it's really, it's, and and whether you think cabaret is something that's for you, go because it will be. Yeah, it, it's, it will be. It yeah. absolutely will be. And it may not be your kind of music, but you know what? You're experiencing live connection. It's something that people need to exp- – I, yes. I just – I want people to see what you do. Yeah. Well, Because thank you. It, it's thank so you special, again. and it's and it's it's really it's, – it's, it's deep. It's from the heart, and it's, it's just – there's something about it that people need to hear. So well, thank, thank you. you very thank much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you. When I have sung my songs to you, I'll sing no more. Would be a sacrilege to sing at another door. We've worked so hard to hold our Just you and I I could not share them all again I'd rather die With just the thought That I had loved so well So That I could never sing again That I could never, never sing again Thanks to Eric Kaur for bringing us that interview with Stephen Carter Hicks. That was great. We've been listening to some music from Stephen Carter Hicks and his album, Step Into My Parlor. That last one was When I Have Sung My Songs to You and Earlier, When the Boys Come Home. The intro music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod from mcompetech.com, and that song's Improbable.
Thanks for checking out Music Live Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.